Who is Jesus? How do we respond to Jesus? Two very, very significant questions. Of course, the answer someone gives to the second question, how do we respond to Jesus, is very much determined by the answer to the first, who is Jesus? If Jesus was nothing more than a first century rabble rouser, then no response is needed. We can consign him to the margins of history. If Jesus was a good moral teacher, we might reflect on his teaching before then deciding to ignore him anyway. After all, how can the moral teachings of a first century carpenter have any relevance for us today? But what if Jesus was more than these things? What if he was the Son of God, the Christ, the Messiah? How do we respond to Jesus if this is the case? This is what I'd like us to consider this morning. And there are three points that I'd like us to think about. Firstly, who is Jesus? Secondly, what should our response be to Jesus? And thirdly, what is the mark of a true follower of Jesus Christ? And we will be considering John chapter 13, 31 to 35 today. So if you do have a Bible, you might find it useful to have it open at John 13, 31 to 35. Firstly then, who is Jesus? Before we get too far into this, it's probably a good idea to think a little bit about the context of this particular passage. The disciples are gathered in the upper room to celebrate the Passover festival. This is where Jesus and his disciples had the Last Supper. Chapter 13 of John's Gospel begins with Jesus washing his disciples' feet. This is a real moment of intimacy between Jesus and his disciples. Jesus is seen to be playing the role of servant king, humbling himself before those who thought that actually it was they who should be serving him. And as the chapter progresses, we see the actions of two disciples in particular. First of all, we see Judas decide to betray Jesus. Jesus suddenly announces to his disciples, very truly, I tell you, one of you is going to betray me. Well, his disciples were completely shocked at this. John, urged on by Peter, asked Jesus, who is it? And Jesus replied that it was the one to whom he would give a piece of bread before passing the bread to Judas. And at the moment that Judas took the bread, John in his gospel tells us that Satan entered into him, signifying no doubt the moment that Judas allowed himself to make the decision to betray Jesus to the authorities. We also, in John 13, see Jesus predict Peter's denial. He says to Peter, very truly, I tell you, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. So, as you can probably see, there's a lot going on in this chapter. And as we begin our passage in verse 31, Jesus makes some rather cryptic statements. He begins by saying, Now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. What does this all mean? Well, the Son of Man is, in fact, Jesus' most common title for himself. He uses it on 81 occasions in the Gospels. And it's never used by anyone else in the Gospels. In the Old Testament book of Daniel, the Son of Man is shown as a heavenly figure 
who in the end times is entrusted by God with authority. Jesus then used this title, the Son of Man, as a messianic title. He was the one sent by God from heaven to earth, and he has all authority to judge humanity when the end of the world comes. And it is at this point that something truly remarkable happens. Jesus is glorified. His full glory is laid bare for all to see. And it is at this moment that Jesus' true identity becomes evident. But what does it mean that he is glorified? Well, Jesus is glorified because it was revealed who he is. He is God. When he is glorified, God himself is glorified in him. And Jesus points the way to his Father and he shows the disciples God himself. And since Jesus glorifies God, God in return glorifies Jesus. We see that incredible bond resulting from the Father and the Son being one with the Spirit. Jesus is indivisible from his Father because they are one God. Jesus chooses to serve his Father on earth, and because he carries out the Father's will perfectly, God gives him glory. Jesus, precisely because he is so attuned to his Father, glorifies God. Well, this then is Jesus at his most remarkable. The servant king who washed the feet of his disciples, now revealed as God himself, and about to die on the cross, for the whole of humanity. This might not sound particularly glorious, but it is. It is because of the context. Jesus knows what is going to happen. Jesus knows that Judas is going to betray him. He could have stopped Judas, but he did not do so. He does not stop Judas because he knows that dying on the cross is the path that his father has marked out for him. Jesus allows this to happen. Yet he's not the tragic, innocent party, the sad victim of betrayal. He is totally in control. He is the triumphant, glorious victim of betrayal. Judas may just be concerned about the money he is going to receive for delivering his master to the authorities. Yet he is doing the work of the Father. He is doing the work of Christ. Bringing him, bringing him to the cross where he would die for the souls of billions. But why is he doing this? It's fine to say that Jesus is allowing this to happen, but why? He's doing it because God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his, world into the world, his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. That's John 3, 16 to 17. This then is the glorification of Jesus. This is the glorification of God. This is the beginning of the end, the fulfilment of God's plan to bring salvation to humanity. The glorification of Jesus is at its brightest, at the darkest moment of human history, when Jesus hangs from the cross. But in that moment, Jesus defeats sin. He defeats the devil. He defeats death itself. So that anyone who believes in him and trusts that he is the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of God, 
can have eternal life in heaven. But that eternal life begins in the here and now. It doesn't suddenly kick in when we die and are raised with Christ. Eternal life is all about a new perspective on life and the world. And that brings us to our second point. What should our response be to the glorification of Jesus? If Jesus is God himself, how should we respond? Well, having revealed himself to be God, Jesus tells his disciples in verse 34, A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. Here's our answer then. If Jesus is God, we should follow this new command. Since Jesus loves us, we should love one another. But why does Jesus describe this as a new command? There's nothing new about this, is there? Surely, loving one another has been at the heart of God's calling since the beginning of time itself. So why is this a new command? Well, the answer here, I think, is in the level of expectation that is associated with it. Jesus is not commanding his followers merely to have a warm, fuzzy feeling towards other Christians. He tells his followers that we are to love as he loved us. I mentioned that at the beginning of this chapter, Jesus washed his disciples' feet. This seems to be a real reversal of position, an upending of expectation. Surely Jesus' disciples should be washing his feet. He was their master, after all. He was the one they were following. Surely they were the ones who should be acting in subservience to him. Yet it's Jesus who washes their feet. This is the mark of the servant king. Here we see Jesus humbly taking on the role of servant to his disciples when he is the king. Not just an earthly king either, but the king of heaven, the son of God. And that's the kind of love that we should be demonstrating to one another. We should be humbling ourselves before each other, placing ourselves, placing others rather before ourselves and serving whatever the cost. We should act sacrificially. That's the mark of Christian love. Giving that we actually feel. Giving that actually has an impact on our own lives. What do you think the mark of that is? The usual answers to this question focus on our money. You know the lines, we should give more cash to the church. We should give more to charity. We should spend less on ourselves and give more money to worthy causes. And yes, of course, it goes without saying that these are hugely admirable things that we should certainly be doing. But perhaps over and above financial giving, we should think about our time. Perhaps that's where we can give truly sacrificially. Because perhaps that's where actually we're most selfish. Many, most of us here probably, work long hours. Perhaps we have long commutes too. Our time is precious. We have so little of it. Of course, we want to spend the little time that we have left over doing the things that we want to do. Maybe that's going for a run or for a swim. Maybe it's taking in a film at the cinema. Perhaps it's playing with our children or going for dinner with our partners or meeting friends for a drink. Maybe, I probably fall into this category, it's just vegging in front of the television at the end of a long, demanding and stressful day. Would it make a difference, though, to God's kingdom, to the church, to our lives, if we sought out new ways to serve, to give up our time, 
then that might be seeking to get involved with the running of the church by joining the church council. It might be offering our services to play an instrument or to sing or to train to preach or to arrange the flowers or to sweep the floors or to clean the loos. It could be committing to attending church prayer meetings. Maybe we have a brilliant idea for an outreach project that someone should take on. But what if that someone was actually you? One of my friends, who is a pastor in a church in Oxford, was once given a piece of advice by an older pastor. He was told that after church, when you've got a coffee in your hand, you'll often find yourself in the position when you see a group of people whose conversation you know you will enjoy. You might also see a person on their own who you know is going to bore you or annoy you or irritate you. The advice he received was, don't take the easy option. Go and chat to the person on their own. Walk towards the pain, was the advice he says. Walk towards the pain. Perhaps that's something that we could try. When we find ourselves in a gathering, don't just gravitate towards your friends, but head for the person who might otherwise feel lonely, isolated or rejected. Walk towards the pain. That, after all, is what Jesus would do. That, after all, is what Jesus did. And that's what this command is all about, really. Sacrificial giving. Loving one another as Jesus loves us. Of course, Jesus took this to the greatest extreme. At the time he was speaking, the disciples might have thought that the pinnacle of Jesus' sacrificial love was washing the feet of his disciples. But we know, with hindsight, that that was rather trivial compared to his greatest act of sacrificial love. That greatest act of love for us was to willingly go to the cross, to suffer an agonising death, so that you and I might be reunited with God, so that our sin might be forgiven, and so we might have eternal life. That's real love. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. That's what Jesus says in John chapter 15, verse 13. Maybe we might be called upon to make the ultimate sacrifice and die for someone we love. It's probably not too likely, however. But our life on earth is finite. The clock is ticking. And by giving our time away to love our fellow Christians... Perhaps, in a sense, we are laying down our lives for each other and for Jesus himself. That, then, is what our response should be to Jesus. We should love one another sacrificially in a way that impacts our own lives as much as it impacts the lives of those whom we love. That's what would make us truly distinctive. That brings us on to our third point. What, then, is the mark of a disciple? Jesus says in verse 35, By this everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. This then is the mark of a disciple, loving each other. This is the mark of a follower of Jesus, loving one another. But not only are we called to love one another sacrificially, the love that we have for each other should be evident to all. It is this love that is the mark of a disciple. And this is the distinctive of the Christian faith. Jesus loved us enough to die for us. 
And we should love each other in the same way. We should love in the way that Jesus loved. If we are genuine followers of Christ, the overarching pressure that a visitor should get when visiting our churches is that they are places of love. Anyone who attends one of your services here at St Andrews or one of your many activities during the week should leave this building thinking, my goodness, St Andrews Church really is a place of love. I wonder if that is the impression that people have of this place. How do you think you measure up to this mark of a disciple? When you come here, do you feel loved? Come to that. When you come here, do you feel that you love? Do you go out of your way to love everyone in your church family? The context of this passage shows just how difficult this can be at times. As we've seen, Jesus knows that Judas, one of his disciples, his closest friends, his most loyal followers, has just left the room in order to betray him to the authorities. Jesus has just predicted that one of his very best friends, Peter, is about to deny that he even knows him, all whilst facing up to the prospect that in just a few hours he will be nailed to a cross. I know that when I'm at my most stressed, I'm at my least loving. When there's just too much going on, I can be quite short with people, rather grumpy, and generally not very, very nice. Just ask my wife about that. But if I'm to follow Jesus' example, even when I'm feeling really put upon, my attitude should still be one of love. If Jesus could love even whilst facing up to his future at the Last Supper, then surely I should be able to love when I'm tired and stressed. Jesus' ultimate act of love was dying on the cross. He died out of love for you and for me and all of humanity who would turn to him. And even at the bleakest moment, whilst hanging on the cross, he prayed a prayer of love. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. That's how we should be known, by our completely outrageous love for one another, even at our darkest times, even when we feel stressed, even when we feel that we have been wronged. That's not to say, of course, that we will always agree with one another. Disagreements are only natural. But anyone who encounters us as individuals and as a church should know that we are Jesus' disciples precisely because of the love that we have for one another. That, I firmly believe, is the greatest witness, the best form of evangelism that there is, loving each other. People will know that Christianity is real precisely because of the witness that we give. They will know that there is a living Messiah who gave everything for them precisely because of the love that we display. Because there is simply no other explanation for the outrageous love that we will share if we are truly followers of Christ. As someone far wiser than I once said, the mark of faithfulness to Christ is not doctrinal belief, but Christ-like love. That love cannot be faked. It's possible to come along to church on a Sunday but not truly be a disciple of Christ. It's perfectly possible to serve on a church committee or to lead prayers, but not truly to be a Christian. But it is not possible 
to counterfeit the love that comes from being a true disciple of Christ. That's the true Christian distinctive that marks us out as followers of Christ. People should look at us as Christians and be completely and utterly gobsmacked by the way we support each other, the way we look out for each other, the way we love one another. They should be left desperately wanting what we have. And what do we have? We have love. We have love that flows from Christ. That's the mark of a disciple, that we love in such a way that everyone knows that we are followers of Christ. So where does this all leave us? Well, we've seen that in the midst of darkness, as Judas left his table to betray him, as one of his closest friends, Peter, was about to deny even knowing him, the true glory of Jesus is seen. In his darkest moments, Jesus is glorified by God, pointing the way to his Father, as his Father points to him and shows the world, here is God made flesh, here is God dwelling amongst us. How do we respond to this? The only way there could conceivably be to follow Jesus' command, to love one another as he has loved us. We should love each other sacrificially. This is the mark of a disciple, how love should be evident to everyone. People will know us as Jesus' disciples because of our outrageous love. If there is no love, then we are not true followers of Jesus. How could we be after the love he has shown us? if we do not follow his command to love as he loves us. So how effectively are we following this command? Do your friends, your colleagues identify you as a disciple of Christ because of your love? Doesn't Andrew stand out as a beacon of love to Horsham and beyond? Do all those who come into this building feel loved? Do we feel loved by this community? Do we love each other? Let's aim to follow this command in the days, weeks, months and years ahead to love one another as Jesus loves us. Amen.